0: listening to Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts, a space dedicated to history, art, culture, politics, sociology, anthropology, and many other subjects. This episode is part of the Libya Studies Lecture Series and was recorded via Zoom on the 13th of December, 2022. In this podcast, Luke Scalone, Sema charge de programme, interviews Dr. Stephanie malia Hong, Associate Professor of Transnational Italian Studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara, about Simulacra and Simulation in the Tripoli Trade Fairs, based on a chapter of her recent book, Empires Mobius Strip, Historical Echoes in Italy's Crisis of Migration and Detention.
1: Hello, everybody, welcome to Maghreb in past and present. I'm Luce Colon, and I'm talking today with Stephanie Melia Holm, Associate Professor of Transnational Italian Studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Today, we'll be talking about her work on Italian trade fairs in Tripoli, Libya, as part of our larger work on Libyan studies. So to start off, could you tell us a little bit more about your work on the Tripoli trade fairs and how you came about working on this subject?
2: Thank you, Luke. And hello to all the listeners. I really appreciate this invitation to be here on the podcast and to share my research with you today. The Tripoli Trade Fair, I got interested in this first with my work on tourism in Italy, and I was looking at the way that World's Fairs, for example, would represent Italy as a destination. And in the course of this research, I came across a lot of research about tourism as a form of colonialism, and I started to get interested in the nexus between tourism and colonialism, and particularly in the context of Italy and its colonies in the early 20th century. And so looking at Libya, which Italian colonizers considered its fourth shore, or La Quarta Sponda, I discovered that they had staged this colonial exhibition from 1927 to 1939 within the city of Tripoli proper, And this was no small exhibition. This was tens of thousands of people would come and visit every year. It had a season that would open from November, I think, and it closed in April. And so I got interested in this exhibition space. So the Tripoli Trade Fair, what particularly was interesting to me was the fact it was a colonial exhibition built on colonial soil. To my knowledge, there's only one other instance of this. The Dutch had done a two-day colonial exhibition in Indonesia. But really what fascinated me was that this was a colonial exhibition built on colonial soil. Typically, these usually have taken place, the most famous example is the Colonial Exhibition in Paris in 1931, where there's a whole series of pavilions built by European colonial powers to demonstrate the dominance on the geopolitical stage. In the case of the Tripoli Trade Fair, what we have are pavilions of Italian colonies built within a colony itself. And what's so interesting about that is that within the city of Tripoli, Tripoli had already been kind of manipulated and curated by Italian architects and planners by the time that the trade fair opens. And so you have within the city itself, the way I frame it in terms of research, is this simulacrum, this fake Tripoli that's been imagined by Italian architects and planners within the fabric of the city itself. And then you go into the exhibition, which itself is a fake exhibition space, staging, for example, a fake souk market, fake Bedouin tents, and creating work displays. So you have this kind of double inframing of a simulacral order, or double fakeness of this idea, this fantasy of what Tripoli and Libya and the ways that Arab culture would be expressed, Arab and Bedouin culture, I should say. So that's where I started with this.
1: And it sounds like these sort of trade fairs are almost a reconstruction of the city within itself. So can you talk a little bit more about what the Tripoli trade fairs might have looked like? What would a person see as they went through these? And what was the interest in going to a Tripoli trade fair? What could a person do there? What would they find really interesting
2: That's a good question. So the fair was always evolving. And I would also want to note the work of Brian McLaren and Kristen von Henenberg and Mia Fuller, three scholars that have also done work on the built environment and the trade fair itself. So from 1927 to 1929, the first two years of the fair, it was really a temporary installation. I think kind of very ephemeral setups of tents and there was nothing permanent about it. After 1929, The fairgrounds receive a permanent home of 50,000 square meter fairgrounds west of the Medina in Tripoli. And it's still there today, actually. It's the site of the Tripoli International Fair. The entrance is still the entrance that you go into. So it goes from kind of ephemeral building materials to brick and mortar. There's this concretization of the colonial exhibition. And one would enter into this fair through a gate It was, I think, 20 feet, 30 feet high, and it had Rome, Roma, written across the top, reminiscent of Roman triumphal arch that one would walk through, which was the colonial regime's attempt to put its stamp of dominance on the city. So one would enter through this gate into a large kind of plaza area that was lined with palm trees. And on each side, there were pavilions in, again, brick and mortar that were built. So you had everything from an Eritrea pavilion, a Somalia pavilion, a pavilion for roads and the Dodecanese. That one was very interesting because all of these pavilions sort of mimicked in some way the forms of architecture that Italian colonizers built in each of these sites. So, for example, the roads in the Dodecanese Pavilion kind of mimicked the Euro-Moorish Venetian architecture that was built there as a sign of Italian dominance. That Venetian-ness, Venezianita, was a representation of Italian justification for colonization in the Eastern Aegean. Historically, it had been Venetian, and therefore it is now us. In Libya, we see Romanness, Romanita, as justification for occupation. Libya had once been Roman, and therefore it's ours to take back. So this is all in the rhetoric of Italian colonization. So in moving through the fair, one would see a colonial order on display that was very much curated and very much presented this idea of Italians as good colonizers. And brava Gente is bringing modernity, is bringing industrialization, is bringing civilization. This is not unlike Other colonial exhibitions at the time. What was interesting in particular about the Tripoli Trade Fair is not only were there colonial pavilions built, but there were also pavilions built for Italian regions. So you had an Italian regional pavilion for Puglia or for Lombardy or Piedmont showing industrialization, showing artisanal products. And what my research was questioning or argues that these Italian pavilions included here belies an insecurity on the part of Italian colonizers to demonstrate the worth of their own enterprise and then bringing that to Libya specifically. In the writings on the fair in this era, the Italian media coverage of the fair, there's arguments that were made to show, quote unquote, the natives, how great it is to be colonized by Italy because look, you have these places like Lombardy and Piedmont and Puglia, which you see here in the pavilions and look at the type of advancements and quote unquote, civilization that we are bringing. So it's an interesting two-sided enterprise depending on who went to the fair. And they were both Italians and local residents who would go there.
1: That is absolutely fascinating, the way that Italian regions are almost trained at the same level as overseas colonies. But this brings me to another question that you mentioned briefly when you mentioned the sort of triumphal arch when you enter the fair, but also the importance of Romanita in Libya. And what is the sort of influences that these architects were relying on in building the Tripoli Trade Fair? What inspired them and how did they actually go about rebuilding this part of Tripoli?
2: That's a good question. And I would certainly refer to the scholarship of Mia Fuller on this. She is the expert and her book, Moderns Abroad, really details this, that Tripoli as a colonial city the approach there was different than, say, to Addis Abeba in Ethiopia or Asmara in Eritrea. Whereas Tripoli, Italian architects and planners created it in a way that was in concert with their own kind of Orientalist fantasies of what a quote unquote Arab city should look like. And so you get essentially this mishmash of architectural styles that don't have an actual heritage grounded in history, but instead in these kind of Orientalist fantasies of what Tripoli should look like. And so that was carried forward into the fair.
1: And throughout your writing on the Tripoli trade fairs, you make reference quite extensively to sort of brutalities that were taking place outside of the city walls of the Tripoli trade fair less often in the city of Tripoli itself, although it was quite widespread, but especially in Cyrenaica. Could you tell us a little bit about what Italian colonizers were doing throughout Libya in the 1920s and 30s as the Tripoli trade fairs were taking place?
2: Well, that is a good question and also a harrowing one because there was a lot of atrocities that were taking place specifically from 1929 to 1933. Italian colonizers had set up a series of 16 concentration camps in Cyrenaica. Since occupation, there had been kind of ongoing skirmishes and a lot of unrest throughout Libya, both in Tripolitania and Cyrenaica, but particularly in Cyrenaica, in the Hebel Akhtar, in the Green Mountain Plateau, being led by a former school teacher, Omar Al Mutar. This was a slow burn guerrilla warfare that was taking place over a decade to resist occupation. And so what I argue in my book, actually, a book called Empire's Mobius Strip, Historical Echoes in Italy's Crisis of Migration and Detention, is that Italy's current crisis of migration has its roots in Italy's colonial enterprise, particularly in Libya. And the control of mobility, mobility is this connective tissue between past and present. And the control of mobility is what the power of empire hinges on. The power to control movement is the power to control people. And in particular, the Bedouin were a profound threat to Italian colonizers, according to their memos and government documents. And it was framed as this grande nomadismo, this great nomadism, that these were people who were uncontrollable because their movements could not be controlled. And so to counter that, There was a concerted initiative to sequester and sedentarize in a series of camps more than 100,000 Bedouin. And they were moved, particularly across Cyrenaica, and settled or in turn imprisoned in this series of camps from 1929 to 1933. And it's a genocide that is little known outside of Libyan history. It's certainly not talked about in Italian historiography, except for, I should note, by Ali Ahmida who is a wonderful scholar. He has a new book out about the Shah, the evil genocide in the camps. And so this was all taking place from 1929 to 1933, while at the same time, so if you can picture 100,000 Bedouin being forcibly marched across thousands of kilometers into these camps, Meanwhile, on display in Tripoli are these series of pavilions about how wonderful that colonization is for Libya and Eritrea and Somalia, et cetera. And what I found, too, in the course of my research was that there were also tourists who were going from the Tripoli trade fair and then taking a trip across the Petrania Libica, the coastal highway and stopping to see these camps and then going on to Benghazi. So in a weird way, for some Italians, they became a tourist attraction, particularly the camp at Soluk, which was the largest camp, it interned about five or 10,000 people there. What I argue in the All Empires a Stage chapter is that the simulacrum of the colonial exhibition sets up this disconnect from the reality on the ground, that there's this hyper-reality of colonial representation And the display of natives, like there was a display of Bedouin tribesmen encircled within this wall with their camels and tent in the trade fair itself, where people can go and look at them and stare at them from above the wall as if you were an overseer or a warden. And that kind of signifying distance that was put into place by the fair allows for this suspension of disbelief, like these tourists would go and look upon the camp as if almost they were looking at the Bedouin on display in the trade fair. So there's a really complicated dynamic going on between colonialism, tourism, and simulacra and simulation here that I was trying to tease out in my research.
1: That's actually surreal, the sort of story of Italian tourists visiting the pairs and then going on to visit these internment camps to visit Bedouin or to observe Bedouin at the very least. Could you talk a little bit more about these ideas of simulacra, simulation, and also you mentioned hyperreality? What are these three major concepts and how do they fit into your work to allow for a really strong view of how do we make sense of this? Because when you say it like this, it seems wild.
2: Well, so of course, I am drawing on the work of Jean Baudrillard and his idea of simulacrum simulation is kind of the defining terms of postmodernity, where copy and original are no longer distinct from one another and are in fact interchangeable. The quintessential example of this is a place like Las Vegas, Paris, or Venice. These are all fakes or copies that have taken on a life of their own. So for example, with the Venetian Hotel in Las Vegas, more people visit the Venetian each year than they visit the city of Venice. And therefore more people get their understanding of what Venice is from this copy than they do from real Venice itself. And so in my first book on tourism, I was looking at the ways in which this understanding of Italy as a destination has come to be understood more from copies like the Venetian than through people who actually go to Italy itself. And so simulation is the processes by which simulacra are formed. And I'm looking specifically at simulacra in the built environment and then also drawing on Baudrillard, what does that mean for people? Those of us who interact with these copies. And he has a whole chapter on clones, for example, ways in which humans become simulacra or how we get embedded into these processes of simulation. And I became interested in the power dynamics of it. And I saw that playing out. I wrote a piece years ago on Disneyland. So in a place which is a simulacrum par excellence that, in fact, Baudrillard argues, it's not a copy of anything. It is a copy that is an original. You can't exchange it for anything else. Disneyland is just Disneyland. And I wrote a piece on the It's a Small World ride. And the ways in which this creates this kind of simulated imperialism, and what does that mean when we are riders on this boat going around and gazing upon the world of these tiny little animatronic dolls that represent, I argue in the article, a form of colonization, form of dominance. And so going from there, still interested in the power dynamics of how we relate both in terms of the way we move through the space, the way that our gazes dominate. This is, again, of course, Timothy Mitchell's argument in colonizing Egypt, that the visual, especially in terms of exhibitions, that the gaze is the way that the hierarchies of power are instantiated. So I'm really interested in the way that colonial and hyperreal merge together. And what does this mean for power? And what does that mean for everyone entangled within these relations of power? And the Tripoli Trade Fair is just one of the most fascinating examples that I've come across because of its location in Tripoli and in Libya.
1: That makes for a very clear explanation of how this entire chapter comes together, as well as your larger body of work. Another thing that you do throughout the chapter is you reflect extensively on the connection between the Tripoli Trade Fair and the Museo Storico Piano delle O or the Bonifica Museum. How are the Italian trade fairs and the Bonifica Museum, which you discuss quite a bit, connected?
2: That's a good question. Thank you. So the Bonifica which is roughly translated as reclamation, was a project under the Italian fascist regime to quote-unquote reclaim lands that had been previously unused. And it can be an agricultural reclamation, uh, an economic reclamation. And south of Rome in the land known as the Agro or the Pontine Marshes, which had famously been attempted to be drained since the time of Julius Caesar, but wasn't successful until Mussolini, the fascist regime created a series of new towns and homesteads and had drained these swamps to make this land fertile, or in the parlance of the times, to reclaim its fertile destiny. And in the 1930s in particular, there was a vast resettlement of Italians within Italy into the Agro Pontino. It was the largest internal colonization project in Italy at the time. And I'm contrast that with what happened in Libya, in particular with the effort known as the Ventimila or the Twenty Thousand. Which in 1938, the regime moved 16,000 Italian farmers into Cyrenaica into one of the largest resettlement operations of external colonialism. So, the two, the Bonifica Museum represents sort of internal colonial colonization efforts and demographic settlement efforts that were happening within Italy under the fascist regime, particularly in the 1930s, and the Tripoli Trade Fair represents this kind of external colonization efforts, particularly with the resettlement or settlement of Italians into Cyrenaica. So that's where the two are connected, that they are these instantiations or spatializations of idealized colonial orders. On one hand, one of internal colonization and one of external colonization. And I'm looking at the way that both of these spaces, these exhibition spaces, dialogue with one another.
1: Fantastic. Finally, what does the annual Tripoli Trade Fair, as well as its cultural construction, tell us about the Italian colonization of Libya in broader terms?
2: In broader terms, what's distinct about Italian colonialism is the ongoing disavowal of its existence throughout Italian history and Italian culture. And if it is acknowledged, it's perceived as something of colonialism light and or it is covered over with this myth of Italians as good colonizers, or brava gente. And so the Tripoli trade fair, I would say, is an actualization of this idea of italiani brava gente, of Italians as good colonizers, as seen through the construction of pavilions and work displays, et cetera. And so what we can take from the trade fair is a very conscientiously curated idea of what Italian colonialism was intended to be, both to those that Italians intended to colonize. That is, you know, for example, Arabs and Bedouin and Somalis and Eritreans and all of the, I would say, heterogeneous peoples that lived in these spaces. I think one thing the trade fair does is flatten the diversity of all the people that were in these geographies. It's making a case to them, as well as making a case to Italians themselves, which there is, I think, as I said before, this insecurity that belied the colonial enterprise, that even though Italians were good colonizers and were not like the French or the British, they still wanted to be perceived as playing on the same geopolitical stage and not being the quote unquote least of the great powers as was framed by Richard Bosworth. So in that sense, the trade fair, it's a complex space that gives us both curated messaging, but also underneath that, the contradictions that were always inherent within Italian colonialism.
1: Thank you so much for Stephanie. And everybody, this was Stephanie Melia Holm on Maghreb and Past and Present Podcasts.
0: Thank you. Thank you for listening to Maghreb and Past and Present Podcasts. Other episodes are available on our website, www.themaghrebpodcast.com, as well as on iTunes and Podbean. For more information on our podcasts, visit our Facebook page, Maghreb and Past and Present Podcasts. Subscribe to the SEMAT newsletter at www.sematmagreb.org or visit the webpage of the American Institute for Maghreb Studies. See you soon for a new episode.